everyone to the Family Medicine Podcast. We explore stories, journeys, opinions, and philosophies within the field of family medicine and primary care. And now, the host of the show, Ross Tanning. All right. Hello again, everyone. Hope the holidays have treated everyone well, and we are starting off the new year and the new decade with a bang here on the Family Medicine Podcast. This is episode 007 with Dr. Singh Pallet, and she is actually not a family medicine trained doc, but she's a board certified internist. She graduated with an MD from the University of Pittsburgh and did her residency in internal medicine there as well and came out to the University of Colorado to do a fellowship in geriatrics. And now she practices medicine and older adult care here in the Denver area. Family physicians can go down a similar, really if not identical, route to practice in geriatrics. Um, So I thought that it was a relevant conversation to have here on the Family Medicine Pod. And really what I'm saying is that family docs can do a fellowship in geriatrics um, and be physicians in nursing facilities and work in convalescent care, older adult care, geriatrics, etc. And you don't have to do a fellowship to have those career opportunities open to you, but you can. And uh, she talked about how it helped her um, really understand the unique aspects of, of geriatric medicine. Um, Dr. Pallet will be coming to my school, Rocky Vista University in Colorado, on Thursday, February 6th at noon to hold a highly entertaining and interactive discussion going further in depth into her work in geriatrics, um, career path opportunities, including um, talking about what a fellowship is and why one might choose to do one or why not. Um, So if you're in the area... Come on down to Rocky Vista University, um, and that talk is put on jointly by the Family Medicine and Internal Medicine Clubs on campus. One of the concepts that she talked about with me on the podcast today um, is the concept uh, that basically every doctor is a geriatrician. Aside from pediatrics and OB maybe, Every doc will be working with older adults plenty, so it behooves it behooves any caregiver and provider to understand the aspects that are unique to older adults' medical care. In this episode, she gave a ton of gems of insight and inspiration like that, um, but I won't try to summarize here or recount my favorite parts. Instead, I'll let you just hear it from her. Oh, and I heated up the mics right before she paid me and the podcast a compliment. So, you know, I had to leave those in for everyone to hear. And I said she paid the the podcast a compliment because I want to include all of our listeners out there. Uh, Would really be no point in recording these without people listening or being interested in learning more about primary care along with me. So thank you. And final reminder before we get going here to send all questions, comments, follow-ups, requests, physician connections to familymedicinepodcast at gmail.com. And uh, any docs that you want to send my way, they don't have to be local um, because we're, we're set up for taking phone calls here. 
Okay, let's do it. Please enjoy my conversation with my friend, the great Dr. Singh Pallet. been enjoying listening to the podcasts. That's awesome. Um, yeah, I think I've listened to four of them. I don't remember all the names, but um, everyone just has compelling stories. And you you seem like a really great interviewer. Oh, thank you. You kind of ask interesting questions and keep it open and keep it moving. And I don't cool. know how to, Awesome. Well, let's yeah, just roll right into goes. it. I got us recording right now. Nice. Um, I'll set the scene um, for the listeners here because I have Dr. Singh Pallet um, with me, and I'm actually at her house um, she invited me to, and we just had a delightful lunch with her and her husband. Um, so thank you, Dr. Pallant, for having me. You're welcome. We had and to find a quiet place to meet. So. Yeah. I know we thought about doing it at your office, and then you said, no, that's probably not the best place. A lot of place, distractions so. there. Yep. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you so much for having me here. Beautiful place. Um, you have a beautiful view overlooking uh, Denver and the foothills um, here. Are we in Genesee? It is. Yep. It's a unincorporated part of Golden. Okay. So it's technically Golden, but it it's got its own its own name to it. Right. Cool. Right. I don't know if it's just a, a neighborhood called Genesee or what. Right. But it's a quick commute for work for me and a, a fun retreat when I come back home in the evening. Cool. So where do you work? I work in Lakewood, mm -hmm. on the west side of Denver. Yep. Um, I'm in a nursing home called Villa Manor Care Center. It's mm -hmm. part of Life Care Centers. And I am the in-house physician and medical director there. Very so cool. It's a quick commute down there and back. And I go to the same place every day, unlike some other geriatric jobs, my previous one. Yeah, they had you moving around from location to location? Yes, exactly. Exactly. And that's more typical, probably. Really? Uh, Is it because a lot of, um, you know, I guess... Uh, um, nursing facilities are owned by bigger corporations and they have multiple locations? Um, well, most of the nursing facilities do not have an in-house physician okay. and part of a special program. Mm -hmm. In many nursing homes, what you find is the patients are part of several different physician services. Mm -hmm. and they might have two or three different doctors coming in at different times rounding on their patients. Okay. And in order to build a big enough of a panel, the doctors themselves have to travel to different facilities to big a build, build a big enough patient panel right. for a practice. Interesting. So it's part of taking the care to the patients. It's good, but it ends up sometimes for nursing home patients, ends up a lot of driving in between the facilities. I see. Yeah. Interesting. So what is, um, I guess, like the, the census that you have right now in terms of uh, patient um, numbers? Um, the building has capacity for about 100 patients. We're a little shy of that right now. Mm -hmm. At any given time, about 20 of them are the 20 of the patients are there for subacute rehab. So they've recently been in the hospital and they're recovering and trying mm -hmm. to get home. Most yeah. of them do make it home. Some of them don't. And the rest of the patients in the building usually live there and they're there for long-term care. Yeah. And as you can imagine, they tend to be older, have a lot of medical comorbidities, mm -hmm. and certainly a lot of functional limitations that require being in a nursing home. Yeah. And is it always the functional limitations or is it sometimes they don't have uh, the family support um, that's going to allow them to go back home or is that kind of hand in hand? Or no, it, 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 it certainly is. Yeah. You know, to live in a nursing home, you have to have some need for a nurse there 24 hours a day or right. some nursing care. Sure. And so if you have 
based on Colorado Medicare, no, no, Colorado Medicaid mm-hmm. criteria. Okay. If you have at least two functional limitations that require help, mm-hmm. you do qualify for nursing home care. If you don't have functional limitations and you need, say you can't live at home for some other reason, you don't have family support or enough resources, there might be other settings that are appropriate. There are assisted livings. Right. There are group homes, uh, other places. Right. So nursing home traditionally has been specifically for that extra nursing support. Okay, cool. So um, what do you have like a, a list on the top of your head of what these um, functional limitations might be or like what are the, you know, some of the most common ones? Um, sure. Um, what's the activities of daily living? That's what we study in, in school. I don't know if I can list them all correctly. Oh, yeah, no, that's you okay. Think about the things you need to do when you get up in the morning. You need to be able to get up and walk, mm-hmm. walking. You need to be able to do your hygiene, yep. take care of yourself. You want to be able to get to the restroom yep. in time without having an accident. Mm-hmm. And you want to be able to eat, sustain yourself, yep. and get dressed. And so those have, kinds of okay, issues, have, yeah. yeah, those are the types of issues that people, all people, no matter what kind of medical disease, mm-hmm. can have those functional problems. And nursing homes are suited for people who need help mm-hmm. with those kinds of tasks. And the people, the patients that you see are kind of just a little bit of, it could be any one of those. It's not sure. the majority have problems getting to the bathroom on time or walking or hygiene. It's kind of could be any and all Huge of those. mixture. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And our nurses and our nursing aides, they're equipped to handle all of them. And yeah. the sicker people get the more functional limitations and more help they need. Yeah. And the nursing home is a fine place to age and get that help. Yeah. Very cool. Um, I just find you think it, it's cool? I, I find Some it people don't think it's cool at all. <laughs> I mean, our society you <laughs> right. know, sees nursing homes as a place where decrepit people go to die. Yeah. Um, and yet every day I see amazing stories and amazing interactions between people. Yeah. That's kind of uh, hard to appreciate. Yeah. I, I feel like I have a little bit of an extra appreciation for it. Really? Um, because as a EMT oh. here in Denver, uh, I guess I got into being an EMT because I thought it was going to be exciting and fast paced and yeah. every call was going to be like a movie. And I was going to be screaming, you know, no time for backup as we you know, slide across the hood of the ambulance with the the jump kit. Turns out a lot, you know, being an EMT is not really like that much at all. <laughs> and that you have a lot of just routine calls and a lot of calls to the nursing home. Okay. Yeah. Uh, or, you know, nursing facilities. I don't, I'm not exactly even sure what the proper terminology is. Or it's all varies. over the place. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, a sniff, a skilled nursing facility. Yes. All those are appropriate. Um, yep. Yeah, okay, good. Um, and so get called there a lot um, for non-emergent calls usually or transfers to the nursing home sure. or away from um, or going to a doctor's appointment or something like that. A lot of times the, the non-emergent ambulance is called. Yes. Um, or occasionally you get in, uh, a code three, an emergency call. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I spent a lot of time there for a couple <laughs> of years as an EMT where I just get to be in these people's, you know, um, rooms and, right. and their lives and see all their, you know, uh, pictures and decorations and stuff. It's, it's pretty it intimate their experience. Home. You're right. Being there. 
a new way that we're using EMTs these days in the nursing home is we're trying to do more and more medical care in the nursing facilities. Mm-hmm. And some of the nurses haven't put in IVs for years. Yep. So sometimes we'll call a paramedic or EMT yep. to place IVs. Yep, we got those calls too. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, those were, those were fun calls because they're kind of procedural. Okay. Uh, you know, you're yeah. not uh, necessarily having to do a whole lot of assessment or history taking. You're just there to do your, you know, a skill and then get out. And that's okay. kind of fun for an EMT to do. Oh, good. Yeah. Yeah. So no, we, we appreciate I, it. I think they appreciate those calls because it, it, it might, you know, take them out, out of the system for a, a little bit while they're, you know, so they don't have to respond to something else. Right. <laughs> Not that every EMT or medic hates responding to you don't always so, need a break, huh? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, it kind of does function as a break. But so you you mentioned um, working with a team of um, healthcare professionals, yes. um, everything from CNAs yes. um, to nurses. Um, what other kinds of professionals are, are um, yeah? The nursing in the home team? is a, an amazing interdisciplinary team. Yeah. That's what it takes to function. Yep. Uh, in my building, I am the primary physician. We have a nurse practitioner who works with some of our patients mm-hmm. based on their insurance company. We have an administrator who makes sure we're working together as a team and financially healthy. The director of nursing kind mm-hmm. of heads up all the clinical teams and the processes. We have our nursing uh, staff on the unit and most nursing homes are staffed by RNs and LPNs. There's Mm -hmm. kind of a variety of skill levels and we have certified nursing assistants. They're providing the hands-on care to the patients. Mm -hmm. And then because a big part of what we do is rehabilitation, we have physical, occupational, and speech therapists running around doing therapy for patients. We have patients who are on oxygen or chronic tracheostomies and so our respiratory therapist is coming in and out of the building. Mm. And because these patients are living there and they still need some services, we do have some ancillary services of providers coming in to bring care. Once a month, we have an optometrist that comes in and does eye exams, an audiologist that comes to test hearing and arrange for hearing aids, a podiatrist that travels and does foot care. And recently, our building has had the pleasure of having a wound care physician come to round once a week. And... So, so it's a huge interdisciplinary, every field uh, of medicine and rehabilitation gets involved. Yeah. And they all have to bring their services to the building, which is more helpful for the patients. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, especially I, I perked up when you said wound care, because that was another EMT call oh. that we'd have to go to is take somebody who's been bed bound for a long time. Oftentimes they have some ulcer on their backside. Um, and bring them to a wound care appointment. But if you can bring the wound care appointment to them, that seems like it's less, helpful. less moving parts, super Absolutely. helpful. Yeah. Absolutely. Which I never really considered the, <laughs> the yeah. option that you might be able to do that. But um, In the Denver metro area, we're lucky that we have providers who can do that. Mm-hmm. Certainly as you get more rural, yeah. patients often have to go out to see their primary care physician right. or to see specialists like a wound care doctor. Yeah. And so... You're in a rehab center. You do you consider yourself these patients' primary care provider? I do. Yep. When they're there, um, when they're there for a short time, mm-hmm. I'm their primary care provider for that time. Yeah. And for some of the patients who've lived there for several years, 
I'm their PCP. I've been taking care of them for several years. Right. Um, I've been at my current job for eight years. Yeah. And there are a handful of patients who were there the first week that I was, wow. and I've known them ever since then. That's cool. So it's a great mix of continuity care plus some acute and subacute kind of care. Yeah. Are, when somebody's there for short to medium amount of time, uh-huh. do they ever um, see a different primary care provider, maybe one that they're, they've had for a long time? Do they you know, either get sent out for that or bring them in for that purpose, or are you just going to be able to take care of everything for them, or maybe they don't even, they just want to see the person that they've seen for many years. Yeah, that's an interesting area of medicine that we're still trying to flesh out. Mm. Certainly, when patients are admitted to a subacute rehab center and I'm the in-house facility doctor, I can see them very readily. I'm mm-hmm. there five days a week. Right. If anything happens, I can take care of it. If they're you know, recovering from surgery, they need to get to some follow-up appointments, I, I handle all of that and coordinate it. But certainly, they are patients that are hoping to go back home. Right. And so their primary care physicians are still going to be their doctor when they leave. Right. So a big part of what I do is to kind of fill in that gap while they're in the subacute rehab center, be their subacute rehab doctor, Mm -hmm. and communicate well with the PCP. And I do a lot of time calling and faxing and sending notes to ensure that that piece of the healthcare has continuity. Mm-hmm. If I'm going to start or change a medication or change something in the plan, I always try to get the PCP involved and make sure that they stay in the loop. Yeah, That's a big part of what I do in the rehab center. It sounds difficult just hearing you talk about it. Is, it, <laughs> is, it, is that a, a difficult aspect? You said it's a big aspect of what you do, but is it because it's hard or just because it has to happen so often? It has to happen. Um, I feel like a physician has to do it uh, and or a physician or a provider could do it. Um, the nursing staff are, are concerned about their task during their shift and getting the patients taken care of from a nursing perspective. But to be able to see the big picture of someone's whole medical care and tie it to their primary care and their community physician, mm-hmm. it takes the, you know, the physician role to do that. And because nursing homes aren't necessarily set up to provide continuity mm-hmm. with primary care, yeah. like our, EA emerg- um, our electronic medical records aren't mm-hmm. connected, um, we often use different hospitals, they might have different insurance companies, it is very segregated. Yeah. And so that's the challenge. That's, yeah. that's what makes it hard. I, I can't right. often can't just pick up a phone and talk to the doctor. I have to call their office and get them paged and fax some information to them rather than just sending something over to them electronically. So that's the challenging part. Yeah. And nurse, nursing homes are kind of this freestanding healthcare institution right. that hasn't necessarily been connected to the communities and to the hospital systems. Yeah, wow. It's a problem all across the board, but mm-hmm. I feel like we especially feel it in nursing facilities. Yeah, I, I bet. Um, it's interesting because when you were just talking about the technology there, I, um, I know that it just brought up in my mind that we've talked previously about the idea that uh, a staple or just a major tenet of geriatric care is low-tech, high-touch. Sure. And I've seen that. Um, I got to spend a morning um, uh, I guess rounding with a doc who is uh, just volunteering at a nursing home out in, I want to say, Brush, Colorado. Nice. A couple hours from here. Um, and that's what I saw from her as well. She was, you know, feeling patients, 
uh, legs and just um, giving them touch. Yes. Uh, e- even when it, there wasn't necessarily anything particular she was looking for, I, I noticed. So I just kind of wanted to hear you talk about um, that aspect of geriatric medicine. Yeah, there, there's a lot to that for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was in high school, I didn't necessarily want to go into medicine. Okay. It was a, a thought. Yeah. But one of my activities outside of school was to volunteer at a local nursing home. And, and, and again, I, I wasn't looking to, at a career in geriatrics or anything. It was just something I happened to do. Yeah. And my job as a volunteer was to visit this one patient in the nursing home on a regular basis and just be her friend. Mm-hmm. And I was a high school student. I didn't know anything. Mm-hmm. And she was an older lady um, who had really thin skin. She was really frail looking. And she could barely talk. When she talked, she mumbled. And it often didn't make sense. And my job was just to go in there and, and be with her. And sometimes that meant I would just sit there while she talked. And I pretended to understand what she was saying and, right. and just interact with her. Or sometimes I would just hold her hand and we would watch the activities going on. And, and at one point, one of the nurses gave me a comb and I started combing her hair and just being there for her. And that taught me that just being there for people is very powerful. Mm-hmm. And it's a connection with another human being, um, a person who couldn't thank me. Um, I wasn't fixing her in any way. I wasn't curing any of her medical problems. Mm-hmm. But just being there had value. Yeah. And the nursing home made it clear that they valued me being there just as a volunteer. And, and so I learned that just sometimes when we just bring ourselves to the person and bring our talents and just bring our kindness, that that means a lot to that person. You can make a difference that way. And so to me, that's what geriatrics often is. Mm-hmm. We're taking patients that often have medical problems that cannot be cured. Um, they're often living the last part of their lives. And just being there and doing what we can as a medical professional brings value and brings kindness to their lives. Absolutely. Um, I mean, that makes perfect sense to me. Um, mm-hmm. We just had a lecture semi-recently in, um, in our OMT class, which oh. is our manual therapy class. So a lot of uh, low-tech, high-touch sure. um, going on there. Um, and part of the lecture, it was, it was specific to oncology, um, or I guess the tenets and concepts of oncology. And part of it was what are the use, uh, what is useful about OMT? Um, and for those who don't know, osteopathic manipulative therapy, mm-hmm. um, where you're, you know, you got your hands on people and you're touching and you're uh, moving their body. Um, what is, what are the positive aspects of that for somebody in, uh, uh, with cancer. And one of them, which I thought was kind of a cool concept, was that it was um, added touch for people who get touched probably less sure. than the average person, either because people are kind of grossed out by the concept of cancer or just it's changed their body in a way that's, you know, made it unappealing to touch, mm-hmm. or just the idea that as people get toward the end of their life, people want to kind of touch them less because they're maybe preparing for the, the inevitable, you know, leaving, um, leaving the relationship. Sure. Um, and it, the yeah. patient population I take care of, 
it's, it's funny. I think the patients in the nursing home, on a practical level, they're touched all the time. Yeah. We have to right. move them around to put their clothes on and off and do their bathroom hygiene. Right. We have to brush their teeth for them sometimes and bathe them. But a lot of that touch is so functional yeah. and goal-oriented. It's for the purpose of doing some task and getting through mm-hmm. one's job. Um, just a, a normal social touch often is lacking. Yeah. Um, our nurses' aides, they, ha- they have their hands on the patients all the time, cleaning them, yeah. you know, moving them. But just holding their hand or just touching a shoulder or rubbing someone's back just, just to be nice and, and convey some comfort, that's often lacking. And, and so if we can just be there as people, often we bring a lot of, a lot of um, extra love to them. Yeah, that's beautiful. So, it, it's a good place where a nursing home is a good place where you can do a lot of good and feel good about it. It's only one part of geriatrics. Certainly, geriatrics is much more than just nursing facilities, mm-hmm. but it's a part that I've been involved with in the last few years, and I really love. Yeah, that's so cool. And I, um, I know we've kind of talked about there's a number of different routes to get into geriatrics. Sure. Um, I, I know we also talked mm-hmm. about that you're going to be speaking at my school, uh, Rocky Vista University, in a couple months. So uh, we're going to touch on this a, lo- a little bit more. But I know we're, we're 21 minutes in here, and oh, uh, <laughs> and I didn't even give kind of your credentials and your background. Um, so if you can just kind of speak about just a couple of bullet points of of your um, history to get to being a, a geriatrician, um, I think everybody would be interested to know. <laughs> sure. Excuse me. It's okay. You're just recovering um, from a cold recently. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's brutal. <laughs> well, I took a traditional route through medical training. Mm-hmm. Um, went to high school in Minnesota. Yeah. I know that's where you're from. So did I. Yeah. Went to college in Cleveland, Ohio. Yeah. Majored in um, chemistry and minored in music. Awesome. And I see. I'm looking at a big grand piano here yes, in your house. Yes. Music has always always been a big part of my life. And during high school and co- college, um, some of my volunteer activities involved playing music for either nursing home or hospitalized patients. Oh, cool. Same with me. I just started uh, doing that about six months ago. Oh, good. Yeah. Keep doing it. There's a huge need, and people appreciate it so much. Cool. When I was in college, one of the researchers there was doing a study on the oncology ward about how music changed the composition of people's saliva in a way that helped them fight their cancers. That's amazing. And as a volunteer, my job was simply to play music, in which I, I could do. And then I would bring my violin and bring my friends with their instruments in, and we would play in the hallways or go room to room and play. And, and I found that very, very gratifying. Yeah. In a way to, to serve people and bring some hope to them with whatever talent that I had, which at that time was not medical. Right. Yeah, people love it. and. Yeah. You didn't know it at the time, but you were in acting treatment. You were, you were being an oncologist, I guess, and you're changing the composition <laughs> you say of their that. saliva. <laughs> right, right. Cool. Well, so that kind of interests me because you were, um, you said in high school you weren't interested in medicine at all. Then you started um, volunteering at that uh, senior facility. That's right. And then was that what sparked the interest? Because then you majored in chemistry, you said. Right. Oh, I was all over the place, Ross. Yeah. I, in, in high school, I thought I'd be a music teacher or a piano performer or a 
a judge or a okay. doctor. Yeah. I was all over the place. And in college, I knew I'd have to pick something to do. I couldn't stay in college all my life. No. Um, and, and I didn't know if like music or science or all of it fascinated me. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, medical school seemed to be a way to keep serving people, use a broad range of knowledge from science to art, mm-hmm. humanities, yeah. and, and hopefully be able to make a good living too. Cool. And yeah, so, probably better than the average violinist. Oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> I really enjoyed it. <laughs> it was a big part of what I did in college. Yeah, cool. Um, that's awesome. So then um, that was I, in um, Case Western in That's right. In, uh, in Cleveland, Cleveland. Yeah. yes. And after that, I went to the University of Pittsburgh and did internal medicine residency. I know that at some point you asked me, how did I decide family medicine, internal medicine, or other residencies? Yeah. And, um, oh, wait, sorry, did I skip medical school? Um, yeah, I did. You went there uh, from, to from college. Yep, I went from college to okay. medical school where I subsequently did residency. Sure. Yep, yep. same in the same college uh, or yeah. the same town. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's where I got confused. But um, I... In, in medical school, too, I was the kind of student who couldn't commit to one field or another. I right. loved everything I did. I found surgery fascinating. Yeah. And psychiatry was so amazing. Mm-hmm. Dermatology was really cool. Like, everything was really amazing to me. Yeah, you're lighting up right now <laughs> talking about it. <Yeah. laughs> I wish I could do it all. <laughs> yeah. And I think, ultimately, I picked internal medicine, partly because I did want to do some geriatrics. Um, one of the mantras in geriatrics is that everyone becomes a geriatrician. It doesn't matter what you go into, mm-hmm. unless you do like pediatrics or obstetrics. But almost every other yeah. medical field involves older people and some knowledge of taking care of older people. Mm-hmm. And I also wanted to leave open the possibility that because I was so interested in everything, you know, if I wanted to specialize in a, another subspecialty, cardiology, nephrology, endocrinology, that I could do that through an internal medicine residency. Yep. So most people get to a geriatrics fellowship by either doing a family medicine residency or internal medicine. Either is fine. Yeah. And a lot of people ultimately, as I said, ultimately practice geriatrics without a fellowship at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was the route I took. And, and I felt like the, the extra training and the in-depth um, exploration of geriatric medicine was very helpful to me. Yeah. That's very interesting. Um, when you say everybody becomes a geriatrician, everybody ideally becomes geriatric as well. You know, sure. it's something that we're all heading toward. Mm-hmm. I, it sounded more profound in my head before I said it. And then when I said it out loud, obviously well, it's a universal but, experience. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's kind of interesting to me. Um, I know it's, it's, something I think about sometimes when I hear people insulting old people, it always is crazy to me because isn't that something you hope to be someday is old? Wouldn't it be a tragedy if you never became old? Sure. Sure. I think it would. Um, but yeah, it's just something that we're all as physicians, most people are going to experience treating, uh, elderly and as uh, patients or as human beings, we all will be there too. Ageism is a, a big problem across probably across the western world yeah how do you see it manifest in your job well well i work in a nursing facility obviously i have a kind of 
very defined patient population that I work with. Mm-hmm. But I see that our society, you know, basically teaches or conveys the idea that you don't want to end up in a nursing home. That would be the worst of all possibilities. Right. You don't want to end up with dementia. That would be awful. We even even have a, a bill here in the, in Colorado about the um, physician aid in dying and the right to choose that. And part of it stems from, I believe, you don't want to be suffering at the end of your life in a nursing home and dependent on others and having so much pain and and not be yourself anymore. And we, we paint that picture as that's a bad thing, that that's the worst possible thing that could happen to you. You'd rather die than become an old person living in a nursing home. Mm-hmm. And yet I see people every day who are doing it and doing it with dignity and in some cases with a lot of family support, in some cases with no family support. And and these people truck through it and they live out their lives and they accept the help that they can get. Um, Some people cope with being in a nursing home very differently. They're adaptive and maladaptive ways of of coping, certainly. And the rest of the team, myself, the whole team that I mentioned that's that's always there every day, we are striving to make each day for these people better. And we can't do that if we have the notion that this is the worst possible thing that could happen to them and that our society should never let people get into this situation. Mm -hmm. This is just part of who we are as a society. Some people end up in a care facility and, and they have to get care that is dignified and uh, matches their level of worth, which as a human being is always very great, even if they're in that condition. So, yeah. so ageism, you know, where you treat someone differently just because they're an advanced age with this notion that they're decrepit and frail and have nothing to offer to society, um, that's uh, a detriment to, to what we do. Yeah, wow. It's, it's almost like you have a, at, at least for that aspect of your guiding philosophy, is that it's, it's at odds with or just different than the prevailing philosophy in, in, that's contained in the rest of society. <laughs> Some people say our, our society is too obsessed about youth. You mm-hmm. know, every um, cream, every vitamin supplement, every exercise out there is aimed at anti-aging. Right. Um, why isn't it more pro-health, whatever right. health means to that person, Yeah, health and wellness? Right. You never see the words pro-health. You see anti-aging <laughs> all over. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Um, in that regard, that actually made me think of another thing I wanted to talk to you about, which is um, you kind of mentioned the word um, aging gracefully and, ding- and doing it with dignity. Um, and then just you talking about like supplements uh, made me think about... Um, the ways that people try to um, age gracefully or ward off aging. Uh, I think that's probably more on people's minds is let, let me ward off aging. Sure. And delay it rather and than be do as it. Be as possible, right, sure. Then, then rather than do it, you know, smoothly uh, <laughs> and gracefully. But um, I wondered if you had any thoughts just, you know, seeing what you see on a day-to-day basis and working with the populations that you do, if there's a any difference in terms of what people have um, done for themselves or had (laughs) done to themselves um, throughout their lives, whether it be sleep or exercise or Uh, diet, 
that make a difference in you know the the process of aging yeah it's there's so many things probably that make it more successful no probably one of the number <clears throat> probably one of the number one things would be uh, a good attitude yeah okay. um, we talk about older people as being a more heterogeneous a heterogenic population compared mm -hmm. to younger people when people are born there's a certain set of pathology and certain set of genetics and things that define what a, a baby is like. But as people get older, there's more and more medical complexity. Mm -hmm. There's more and more variety in the life experiences and the choices that people have made, Definitely. the relationships that they've made along the way. And as you look at an older population, the variety of life and experience and health is huge, huge compared to, say, a younger population. And that's a, a sociological concept, I think, that people sometimes describe, that there's more variety mm -hmm. as you see an older population. And, and so there's not certainly not one thing that makes people more successfully age or age more dignified than others. But, but the attitude that people have carries them through their whole life. And it's funny, some of my favorite nursing home patients are the ones who are trying to stay young right. <laughs> and they have a spunky attitude or they're trying to keep up some of the, the habits they had when they were younger or, um, you know, it, it's fun and, it, and it's endearing. Sure. But there are people who um, don't necessarily fight the aging and they're embracing where they're at in life. And um, some of them will tell me that they're ready to go, they're ready to die when it's their time because they lived a fulfilled life and they're at peace with where they are in life. And that attitude, what, no matter how it manifests, just that it's um, resilient and that it's positive and that it's forward thinking, um, it seems to be a common among a lot of people. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, I also kind of noticed that you were like, okay, society wants us to hold on to our youth. And if you do it in some, I don't know, maybe for the wrong reasons, then that can be a bad thing. And, and you're trying to cling to, to youth. But it's at the same time, or maybe on the other hand, it's um, a positive thing for people to maintain a youthful posture, or youth, youthful attitude and outlook towards life. Uh, I think it's a say, mindset. Yeah. yeah. I think it's okay. a mindset. Yeah. That's... Um, I like that. I mean, because it seems like something that you can, in general, control without, you know, having to, um, you know, take any supplements. You don't have to, <laughs> uh, you know, really modify too much in your life. You can just kind of think yourself uh, into a, a more positive way of thinking. It could be cultivated for sure. Yeah. yeah. That's One of my friends interviewed her um, 95 year old grandmother or something, and she asked her asked her what the secret to. Her yes. longevity was. I love these. <laughs> her her response was, in my mind, I always think that I'm 59 years old. Nice. And that's just for the second half of her life, at least, right. had always been her age. That's good. That's yeah. awesome. I think it's you ask somebody who's old and aging well, and you ask them, oh, what's what's your secret? <laughs> and the, if the person eats, you know, bacon and eggs every morning, they say, my secret, <laughs> bacon and eggs every right. morning. And if they are you know, a, a smoker and a drinker, then that's their secret because <laughs> it's worked for them. Sure. And then if, you know, whatever, if they get 10 hours of sleep every night and do their exercises every morning, then that's their secret. So <laughs> it, it's funny that, 
it's uh it, you know it's in the eye of the beholder kind of yeah cool well let's um i wanted to kind of transition um to talking about the a, a little bit of um the unique difficulties of working with the elderly population um we kind of touched on a, a little bit of it before talking about activities of daily living um being you know one of the biggest issues and um working in a medical setting with um elderly people but is there anything else that you can think of maybe difficulties for the providers and for the the healthcare workers themselves or is it more emotional is it less emotional you're dealing with death and dying a lot you're dealing with difficult family situations a lot i imagine um you know what what just personally to you do you find the most difficult aspect um that is unique to you know your field one of the reasons i like geriatrics is there's such a variety of challenges every day Mm -hmm. my position is as an attending physician for the majority of patients in our building and i'm also the medical director of the building and while geriatrics itself is rather challenging and um, intellectually stimulating for me, medical direction provides an extra layer of complexities and challenges. And that keeps me on my toes because I get to do, do a lot of, of different things. Yeah. Um, when I see a patient and I'm, you know, think about my patient that lives in the first room on the left at, at the nursing home. And mm-hmm. She's older. Um, she used to. She's a resi- retired school teacher. Mm-hmm. Uh, she has dementia, at least through the moderate or advanced stages. And when I see her and and deal with her issues, they're very special. And they're, you're not going to find it anywhere else in the spectrum. You're not going to see a, a middle-aged person or a young adult person with these kinds of issues. Mm-hmm. Um, for instance, she has respiratory disease. This developed after she entered the nursing facility. And over the last seven years, she's had bronchitis like two or three times a year. And because of her advanced dementia and functional decline, a pulmonary consultation was not really an option. Um, Getting PFTs would never work because she couldn't follow directions. Um, We couldn't tell her to stop smoking because she already had. Um, And so some of the normal things that we would do for someone with that, we couldn't do for her. So for her, I had to just um, treat the bronchitis every time it came up, presume it was COPD, and treat her as if she had COPD. Mm-hmm. And, and for the last couple of years, she's been a lot more stable. So it's kind of one of the challenges of working in, a, like, as we talk about, a high-touch, low-tech environment. Yeah. And as her dementia has progressed, she's also had challenges in her neuropsychiatric manifestations. She has behaviors. She will go around the building thinking that she's still a school teacher and this is her school and she's wondering when she should go home where are the kids should i call my parents where are my car keys and this escalates to anxiety severe severe anxiety is this something we can just medicate is this something we can just give her cognitive behavioral therapy to fix well it's more complex than that So, so no and as a physician what i have to do is use all of my internal medicine, my medical skills. Mm -hmm. So when I see this lady, if she's had a particularly bad day and had a change in her behaviors, I have to rule out every possible medical illness that I can at the bedside and make sure she's not having a urinary tract infection, pneumonia, 
having a heart attack, you know, mm-hmm. um, medication adverse effect. But I also have to apply geriatric principles and see what kind of non-pharmacological interventions we can do for her. Does she need um, an extra activity to do that day? And do we need to move her to a lower stimulating environment? And do we need to get some activities going that appeal to her that have to do with young kids because we know she's a teacher? Right. And then, if needed, if she's having behaviors that escalate to where she could hurt herself or hurt someone else, what kind of medications can we give to treat that and mitigate those behaviors? A lot of different layers involved in treating this person. And that's what geriatrics is about. Yeah. Using the best we have of medicine plus more to make this person's life a little bit better. Knowing that we can't fix them, not going to sh- prolong her life, not going to fix her dementia, not going to keep her from dying. But I'm going to make every I'm going to make every day for her a little bit better and, and improve her health in that way. Yeah. It's a challenge and it requires a lot of skills, but skills that I enjoy using. Yeah. It sounds like such a like th- four different puzzles all needing to be solved to solve a bigger puzzle and then at the end of the day you're like you said you're not really even uh trying to cure anything you're just trying to make today better sure it's it's kind of wild and my as you were talking i was thinking is that all that much different than any sort of internal med or just medicine um that goes on you know outside of a, a skilled nursing facility meaning there's always going to be some sort of layers. There's always going to be many different puzzles within the bigger puzzle to solve. Sure. I imagine, um, or at least frequently. Um, but what you said there at the end, you said, and it's an extra layer. It's not an extra layer on top of some other layers. It's extra layer on top of all internal medicine that could possibly be going on. And then there's, um, you know, the several different elements of just being elderly and with uh, incurable and that's how I disease. view geriatrics. Yeah. And as a medical director of the nursing facility, that extra, extra layer yeah. is the, the system-wide issues. Yeah. So if we're going to provide extra activities for this lady to help her feel better, do we have enough staff for it? Right. Do we have the resources for staff to bring her crossword puzzles? Are there crossword puzzles in the building? Right. Are, do our staff know how to do that? If we're going to be prescribing psychiatric medications for her, are we staying within the realms of the nursing home regulations for how to use those medications and documenting it appropriately? And when state regulators come in and ask whether we're restraining this patient chemically, do we have an answer for that? Yeah. And as a medical director, that becomes a whole different aspect of the care that's very important, just totally. as important, but just on a, a different um, a different perspective, viewpoint. Yeah. Is that more challenging, equally as challenging, or just differently challenging? I'd say it's different. Yeah. Yeah. You can't be a good medical director without being a good physician. Right. And you can't be a good physician without understanding what the medical director viewpoint is. Right. Right. Um, As you were just telling that story, I was thinking of some of the most amazing... um, nursing facilities that I've seen and how, uh, you know, they can, usually they look clean and they look nicer, but not always. (laughs) Um, and then oftentimes you, I I was also thinking of, uh, a, 
you know, some of the worst nursing facilities that I've seen. I just kind of wanted to hear your thoughts on what would be the difference between those. Does it come down to administration? Does it come down to just not having the, the resources to provide um, those types of things and like staffing and, you know, the functional care, like providing, um, like you said, uh, whether it be a crossword puzzle or something like <laughs> that, or, you know, what is, what makes a good nursing home a good nursing home? Yeah, these nursing homes change all the time, for yeah. sure. And I'm impressed that you've seen different nursing homes, maybe through your work, so I would think. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> um, and in general, when people are selecting a nursing home for their loved one, mm-hmm. often it's because the person has recently been ill. Maybe mm-hmm. they've been in the hospital and they're recovering from an acute illness. And a case manager calls the patient's son or daughter and says, hey, your mom or dad is being discharged this afternoon and she needs a nursing home, which one do you want? And so the family has to scramble and find one. Yeah. And there are some books out there. There's some websites that compare different nursing homes with this and that. And, and people try to find a, a facility close to their home so that they can visit their loved one. Yep. And so on that day, they might scramble around and just go tour a few of them. Mm-hmm. And, and that first impression often is what they build their decision on. Totally. And um, you're right. Some of them look nice and they smell nicer. Um, Ultimately, does that translate to better care? We don't think so. What creates better care in the nursing home is a huge question in the industry and Mm -hmm. not one that's easily answered. Um, The government has a website called Nursing Home Compare, Mm -hmm. and it rates each nursing home based on stars. And the criteria that goes into those stars, whether you're a five-star building, which is considered excellent, or a one-star building, are, are based on specific criteria related to how the building did with state surveys, how they do with um, patient satisfaction interviews, and then other criteria like staffing and, and compliance with other regulations. When you go on those websites, it changes all the time. Like some buildings that were once a five-star can drop down to two or three stars really? for, for random reasons. Buildings that were previously not very good can go up to four and five stars. So it's a fluid uh, demarcation. When you say random reasons, <laughs> what, uh, is just one of those aspects changes? Sure, like if you staffing get, say, get a staffing change, reviews. a citation for something that was unexpected, yes, it can totally change that star rating. But ultimately, at the bedside, you know, what matters to the patient, that certainly they need to get competent care Mm -hmm. that matches state regulations, but they need care from people who are present and um, doing their jobs with a a sense of duty and real genuine compassion. I think that's what matters most to people. I think that's what matters most. Yeah, you can get that in a one or two star building. Yeah. And um, it's kind of short-sighted to just rate facilities and say this is good this is bad um when we need all of them yeah right and even the bad ones can provide good bedside care not every facility has an in-house physician like mine Um, it's kind of a novel concept we believe that that helps to elevate the medical care still has to be proven in the industry Mm -hmm. but um 
each nursing home is kind of out for a scramble to make itself the best nursing home. Right. Um, yeah, that's really interesting when you said, um, you know, it's just kind of about at the bedside is what really ends up making or breaking it for the patient themselves. And they can find that through any sort of community engagement or I guess um, community um, what's the word I'm looking for? I guess what I could be saying is any patient could get that in their roommate, could get some sort of, you know, their, just their randomly assigned roommate in, in a facility. That or could, could totally be change their experience. super connection with uh, one of the nurse's aides, or it could be uh, uh, the physician or the, who, you know, what other staff member or faculty, not faculty, staff, mm-hmm. I think sure. is the word I'm looking for. Yeah. Um, so that's that's uh, it's cool and that's promising because, like I said, I've been in ones that really just seemed no bueno and some that mm-hmm. seem mm-hmm. fantastic. But I don't know. I guess it, it's uplifting that it could people could be having a great experience no matter where they are or, or horrible experience. And when you look at the literature, they there's no one answer certainly yeah um they look across it and there are many different criteria for deciding which one's good or bad and they'll look at um, for-profit versus non-profit nursing homes ones that are connected to the academic center versus not which ones take a little bit more medicaid and which ones take less uh, so many different variables in that and there's no one factor right yeah. interesting um i was also kind of curious uh, you, you talked about uh rounding um, I was kind of wondering what that looks like compared to whether patients can like make appointments sure. with you. I mean, you talked about being the primary care provider, so I right. assume that they can, or is your entire day spent rounding or doing administration, uh, uh, medical direction, I should say. Every day I balance that and it, it changes every single day. Okay. Um, my previous job, my first geriatrics job after training, I was doing kind of the whole spectrum of geriatrics. I was with a practice that had clinic-based patients as well as nursing facilities, assisted living, and homebound patients. And so in any given week in my old job, um, I would spend one day in clinic where people would come in for 20 or 30 minute appointments and I would see them and send send them on their way home. And the rest of the week, I would go to skilled nursing facilities assisted living facilities and do house calls, bring the care to our patients. And that kind of care, usually the patients are there Mm -hmm. and you can make appointments, um, but they're not necessarily expected, at least in our current environment. And so it tends to be a little more flexible for the provider. And so my current job is 100% skilled nursing facility work. And on any given day, I might be admitting or discharging patients from the subacute rehab setting, mm-hmm. seeing acute issues, as well as doing some routine follow-up appointments. You say acute issues from the patients that are already there. They have something come up. Yes. Yeah. Yep. A new cough, a new fever, a medication change, yep. and following up on those issues. Yeah. Um, and then so um, you said there's 100 or so patients there? Yes, just about, more yeah. or less. Um, which is kind of interesting because I know the average primary care provider probably has in the thousands. Yes. Is that right? Right, right. 4,000, 5,000. Right. So my patient population, my panel is very limited, and um, I get to focus on them. Yeah, that's cool. The 
the majority of my time is spent with a subacute rehab patient population. These are the patients that are recovering from a recent hospital stay, so many of their medical issues are still not resolved. Mm -hmm. They're trying to go somewhere, like go home, or to see if they can go home, and they're still tying up a lot of loose ends on their medical conditions. So that's the majority of where I spend my time as a skilled nursing facility specialist, sniffist. Yeah. Is the new term. Oh, I like that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the long-term care patients become my continuity panel. And you're right, it's a smaller panel. And for this particular job, because it's a smaller panel and I'm just in this one location, um, I provide the continuity for all the patients in the building. I take calls Monday through Friday for all my patients. And then I share weekend calls with a group of physicians doing the same thing that I'm doing in the same company. And so I'll take calls one out of every five weekends. And that's how we try to balance some, get some life outside of medicine, but still remain available to the patients that we know. Yeah, one every five, you said, yeah. weekends? Yep. Sounds not too bad. I mean, I, I don't really know what the uh, a typical call schedule would be, but I imagine it's more than that. Yeah, depending on what, how big or small the practice yeah. that someone's in. If you're in a practice all by yourself, you might be taking the majority of all the calls all, all the time. Yeah. If someone's in a large practice with 30 other physicians, it might only be one call every 30 days. And in my call, my practice is blended. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and when you're on call, how often or how much do you take call or get called I guess I, should say. <laughs> I was just on call last weekend yeah. How did that <laughs> I'm go? still recovering oh, no. <laughs> no so in my practice I'm when I'm on call I'm covering for six or seven different nursing facilities across the state oh. for people who have an in-house physician it's a special program mm -hmm. and nursing homes are a special environment um, a few years ago, there was a poll about why there weren't enough doctors serving nursing homes. There is a shortage. Yeah. And why didn't more doctors want to serve nursing homes and provide medical care? One of the top reasons was that there are too many phone calls. Uh -huh. and it's totally true. <laughs> <laughs> the regulations require that nurses provide physician-driven care. Everything a nurse does has to come from a physician order. If a person, obviously, if they need an antibiotic or an x-ray, they have to call a physician. But also, if they scrape their knee and they need a Band-Aid, or they have a headache and they want some acetaminophen, they have to call a physician. Mm -hmm. And um, these calls come constantly from our nursing facilities. Yeah. And so last weekend, I was getting about one call an hour during the day. Maybe it's not that bad. I don't know. I might exaggerate. Right. And I got several calls during the night while I was sleeping. Yeah. And um, several of them ended up in patients being sent out to the emergency department. Several of them ended up with some lab, lab studies being drawn. Some of them ended up with some very simple orders or just some orders for the nurse to continue monitoring the patient. A variety of things. It felt very busy to me. Yeah, it sounds busy. <laughs> Especially because, you know, if you're sending them to the ER, getting labs, then it sounds like you had to put on your thinking cap to really think what's going on here. Sure, I, sure. I imagine. It's a 24-hour care facility. Yeah. And without the physician there physically 24 hours, that means phone calls after hours. Yeah. And so what do you, what's, what's going through your mind when you get the call for, uh, you know, Sheila scraped her knee <laughs> and uh, there's a little, uh, you know, 
um, it's great. <laughs> and there's nothing, there's nothing uh, else going mm-hmm. on. And that's it. Mm-hmm. Can we give her a Band-Aid or not? Sure. Is that, is that a, a call that... Sure. Is, yep. A kind of know, a typical call. You could get? Yes. And, and for the nurses that I know really well, because I've worked the, with them for many years, they know I'm always going to say, yes, do this, do that. And they just follow the protocol and let me know on Monday. <laughs> oh, okay. So that, that has evolved. But um, it, it's interesting that you ask that question. We've spent a lot of time as a practice, and for me individually, looking at these calls and how to make them better. How do we enhance them to better serve the patients as well as not make the physician so burned out that we just leave nursing home medicine completely? Yeah. A big push in the nursing home industry is to avoid unnecessary hospitalizations. Totally. If patients don't need to go to the hospital, try to treat them where they are yep. in a safe way. and. If you can imagine, if I'm at home and a nurse calls me about, who did you say, she, patient Sheila? Yeah, you Sheila. Know, who scrapes their knee? Yeah. <laughs> you know, how do I know at home that this is not a laceration that requires sutures? Right. How do I know that this is not an infected wound, a cellulitis that requires antibiotics? Yeah. How do I know questions. there's not a fracture under there if I'm not at the bedside? Well, well I have to use the nurse. The nurse is my eyes and ears. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of attention has been drawn to this particular phone call, um, this communication. Number one, how do we get the nurses to call when it's appropriate? Yep. And there are some protocols out there looking at when to urgently versus non-urgently call a physician in a nursing facility. Okay. And there are some protocols once you decide to call the physician how to communicate that information. And this is across all healthcare settings, but we really try to push the SVAR situation, background assessment, a request. Talk about what the situation is, give some pertinent details on the patient's background, tell your assessment using objective clinical language, and then state what your request is. If the patient really just needs a Band-Aid and the nurse says, I think they just need a Band-Aid, then the nurse makes it very clear to me that that's their impression, that's what they're wanting. Yeah. But if really in the back of their mind they're thinking this person yeah. needs to go to the emergency department, the nurse better say that. Yeah. So there's a, a certain training that can be applied here yeah. to improve that interaction. And hopefully over time, making these calls more appropriate make sure the best outcome comes out of the calls, and then make sure as a physician, this hasn't, this hasn't been studied, but, but it should be, make sure as a physician that these calls, it, rather than burning me out, still give me some satisfaction that I'm doing a good job. Yeah. That's cool. That, that sounds like it should be um, definitely something that... Stuff we're working yeah, on. Yeah, that should improve m- moving forward, but um, it also, when you said... Uh, it, it's in place to, in part, prevent the the provider from burning out. Um, does is there, are there other ways in which geriatric medicine burns out uh, physicians? Maybe dealing with you know difficult emotional situations or death and dying, or um, much like pediatrics, dealing with mm. families that are <laughs> uh, difficult, um, or is. Or is that a non-issue because you're you're doing your job and you enjoy doing it? No, that's a, a great question. There was a study several years ago looking at physician satisfaction in their jobs, and geriatricians tend to be among the happiest 
positions. Hey, that's great. <laughs> and I, I don't know exactly why that is. I can only guess. But I think the people who tend to go into geriatrics have a certain, maybe a certain approach to life or approach to their careers, yeah. our, our careers. And we're dealing with a patient population that understandably is already very frail and fraught with medical issues. So that's just a given. And, and, and if someone doesn't enjoy that part of it, they probably wouldn't go into geriatrics. Right. Self-selecting sample. Maybe. Yeah. And there's a lot of fulfillment in geriatric medicine. You feel that you're serving a population that can be neglected by the rest of society, fulfilling a, a shortage uh, of geriatricians in this country, and taking care of people that really, really need help at a crucial time in their lives. So I think that helps to offset some of the other stuff, not always. Right. And the burnout in my industry comes a lot from some similar things from other specialties and some different, the common things like electronic medical records, insurance yeah. companies, right. um, dealing with um, corporate personnel and, and different agendas. Um, the, the things that you might think are really frustrating on a day-to-day -day basis for a geriatrician, I think are just part of our jobs. And, and while they while they could be considered a source of burnout, since they've always been there, I think we, we've learned to adapt maybe. Um, the things that I'm thinking about are some of the things you mentioned. How do you internalize the feelings that you're having once a patient you really like dies? Um, how do you deal with the emotions that come when you're trying to help a patient and their family hinders that care or what you think is the appropriate care? Um, how do you justify things to yourself when you think you're doing the best for a patient and either they or their family member you know, accuses you of harming them? And that happens. And maybe not special to geriatrics. In some ways, yes. You know, we yeah. deal with more families and death and dying than other people. Um, and that's just what we have to, to cope with. And I'm lucky where I work. I work with a whole team of people. And if I'm having a frustrating day, having a bad day, or I think that a patient is not appreciating me or not doing well, or their families are particularly difficult to deal with, usually it's not me only that's dealing with it. Mm -hmm. Our social worker, our therapist, our nurses, they're all dealing with it too. And so as a team, it's much easier to get through those things together, work together, share some of the, the work to, to address the problems. That's a beauty. I, in every geriatric setting, interdisciplinary care is one of the foundations of the care being provided. Yeah, that's great. So we have to lean on each other. Yeah. Would it almost be impossible to go to be in geriatrics but be a solo practitioner, or is that is that a thing? There are people out there. Um, in community settings, there are people who practice geriatric medicine as solo providers. Mm -hmm. They have to be prepared to address the interdisciplinary nature of the problems that come up with their patients. Yeah. The patients do require a lot of social work. They require a lot of nursing care. They require therapy services. They often require you know, long-term management of medications that in a larger geriatric practice with a whole team of people could be addressed more from a team aspect. 
mm-hmm. it can be done. Yeah. And a lot of solo practitioners go to nursing facilities and round in different nursing facilities as a solo practitioner. And the teams in the nursing facilities become their team. Right. So that's like something they would do on the side and like, or like part time or it varies. Yeah. Uh, there are people right here in the Denver metro area that are doing some nursing homework part time. There are some that make it a full-time profession. But if they're a solo practitioner, you're saying they would be doing it as like an independent contractor type thing? Correct. So I'm just working for myself, but I just go and sit in. I see their these. patients. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I get it. Be yeah. responsible for those patients yeah. that are under their care. Okay. Yeah. That makes mm-hmm. sense. Um, another thing on my mind, because you brought it up, is um, you said when we were talking about burnout and dealing with the difficulties, you mentioned... Um, having to deal with insurance. Um, but then I was also thinking that a lot of your patient population uh-huh. would be on Medicare. You're right. But they also have, I'm, I'm assuming a lot of them have private insurance, um, or at least sometimes they do as well as Medicare. Is that right? Yeah, it's a huge variety. Yeah. And you're absolutely right. The patients that I deal with, and I'm talking specifically in a nursing facility, Okay. if they've recently been in a hospital setting and they had three midnights in the hospital, Medicare will pay for them to go to a sub-acute rehab facility to do rehabilitation. Three midnights in a hospital. Okay. That's correct. Yeah. And that that's a, a novel like concept to you. Yeah. It's completely arbitrary. Right. I, <laughs> I don't know what like about some bureaucratic idea. Yes. That, right. Yes. <laughs> Sorry, go on. No, then I, that's I a, loaded, a loaded comment, actually. Yeah. Um, I mean, there are groups actively trying to tear down that rule yeah, um, okay. and insurance companies trying to prove that three midnights means nothing. Sure. But sorry, um, but, sorry. But I actually yes. was spacing out <laughs> now that I realized. So you said yeah, if they're so, geriatric so having, and they have Medicare and yes. they've been in the hospital for three nights. Yep. Okay. And they can go to a nursing home to do subacute rehabilitation. That's where I see them for a short stay. Yep. And at that time, Medicare covers everything about that stay, the medications, the room and board, the therapy. If a person wants to stay in a nursing home, Medicare does not cover long-term stays. So the person either has to pay privately through their own funds. If they have very few assets, they can use Medicaid. In -hmm. the state of Colorado, Medicaid services um, are very lenient for nursing home patients. It's different across the state, across the country. And often our patients will have a secondary insurance that pays for medications and for outpatient services. And so we see a combination of payer sources for our patients. Everyone gets the same basic nursing home care. But when I prescribe a medication, if the patient's on Medicaid versus if it's their other insurance that's paying for the medication, uh, United, Aetna, Blue Cross... Um, what's covered might vary tremendously. And then the way to appeal those coverages and to reconcile what the patients need versus what the insurance is asking for, it's different for every single insurance company. And nursing homes are not necessarily set up to deal with that. And so it falls onto me as a physician to try to navigate and to do these prior authorizations for insurance companies. And that's become a, a, a hassle, a new hassle that, that I haven't necessarily figured out how to um, completely fix yet. Yeah. 
Yeah, I'm trying to rally my staff to help me with <laughs> it. it. And, overwhelming um, just as I'm here, sitting here thinking about it. It's a reality. Yeah. And, um, and I think every system, it, not just nursing home physicians, obviously, every physician in the system has to find out a way to handle it. And if I had in my own office with my own staff of people, I might assign people certain tasks to, to help deal with the insurance companies. Um, in a nursing facility where I'm counting on the nursing home staff, it's a sort of a different story. Yeah. Yeah. Um, wow. Yeah, I'm still... Um, it's it's a like, seems like a big of game it. of whack-a-mole. Oh, I got to go over here <laughs> for this insurance <laughs> and then I have it. to do this thing for this, you know, uh, insurance plan. And, oh, sure. they won't take the, and it. Um, Their formularies might change every year. Right. And when we send things in for review, sometimes they're reviewed by a pharmacist or a nurse practitioner, not necessarily a geriatrician. Right. Um, yeah. Actually, that kind of brings up my next topic that I wanted to talk about, which um, we can kind of uh, um, land this plane here on, on this topic. Um, but you talked about um, that, um, you know, people don't get a whole lot of uh, exposure to geriatrics in medical school. I think you talked about that. E- either way, I was thinking about yes. that because I've noticed that myself. Uh, I do feel that way. Yeah. Most geriatricians feel that way too. Right. And... I know in, in just my schooling, every now and then we get whatever topic we're talking about, then we'll get a pediatrics talk on the subject because, you know, children are not just little adults, right? That's yes. what they, that's the, what people say. Right. And then you've also kind of, you know, illustrated that uh, the elderly are not just older adults. They have certain needs and specific sure. needs that are d- distinct from just a, a middle-aged person, oftentimes. Sure. Not always completely distinct, but it's it's different. So I was thinking if you had thoughts on getting more geriatrics education into the core curriculum of medical school uh, or whether that was necessary because during rotation, the years three and four of medical school, you're inevitably going to see a ton of geriatric patients. Like you were talking about, everybody becomes a geriatrician. Um, do you have thoughts on, I don't know, possibly potentially in the future changing medical education, just tweaking it a little bit to get more uh, elderly education? Well, there's no doubt we all need more um, geriatricians have thought for a long time there's a huge shortage of geriatricians we will never have enough geriatric specialists to cover all of the aging people in this country Mm -hmm. so rather than being the geriatric provider for every single person shouldn't the people with the expertise teach everyone else how to do the right things for older people. Yeah. And so I think the education piece is huge and it's going to be really crucial to be able to take care of our aging population. And, and, and you're right, that means that not every older person is going to have to see a geriatrician as they get older, mm-hmm. but they should, be able to, they should be able to find a primary care provider who can provide them age-appropriate care in whatever setting they end up going to. If they're in the clinic or in the nursing home or at home. Yeah. And that comes from educating our medical providers in that way. 
I was lucky in, in my medical school. The first day of medical school, mm-hmm. um, one of the physicians who got up to talk to us was a geriatrician. And she talked with such passion about her work. And she even showed a video from a local news channel of her doing a house call on a patient. And it was very, what well, we talked about, high touch, low tech. Yeah. And it was so amazing what she did. And she inspired me. I didn't necessarily want to go into geriatrics that day, but I knew that I wanted to be that kind of physician. Yeah. And, and she, she had a wonderful program that I participated in during medical school where I was paired with an older adult in the community that was homebound. Mm -hmm. And my job was to go and visit this older person on a regular basis. And during those visits, we were assigned as medical students different tasks. So I would have to learn to take a history, would learn to take vitals, learn to check her heart, learn to check her feet. Um, perform the mini mental state exam, which nowadays we would probably do the St. Louis mental status exam, Mm -hmm. the slumps, um, and do different tasks that our geriatrician mentor was telling us to do. And in that way, I got to practice geriatric skills and learn what geriatricians find important in the assessment of an older adult and provide a really great service for this older woman that I came to know over the course of two years. And um, she was... Wonderful, wonderful lady <laughs> who, who I got to, to serve in this capacity. And I think that if more medical students could just see the human side to geriatrics and to older adults and get the proper training in how to care for older adults, that would go a long way. And we, we need that kind of care in this country. There's a huge push across the board to to um, the medical home in primary care. Mm-hmm. There are huge cut, huge efforts across the country to reduce uh, misuse of medication prescriptions, mm-hmm. antibiotics and whatnot, um, get people in the hospital when they need to, get them out when they don't need to be there, and provide patient-centered care that's consistent with their goals, the patient's goals, not necessarily the provider's goals. Right. And this is all geriatrics. Yeah. This is what we've been trying to do in geriatrics all along. Right. Because it makes sense for everyone. And so I think that geriatrics is going to be just more of a, should, should be more of a fundamental for, for everything that we have to learn in medicine. And there's, there's no question we have to do that. Yeah, wow, well that's beautiful. Um, I, I really thank you for talking to me for, um, you know, over an hour here about, uh, really? <laughs> yeah, we're, we're at an hour and just about 14 minutes. Oh, so I, I enjoyed, you know, every minute of it cause you speak me so too. passionately oh. on the subjects and you have so much to say. And I, I really uh, appreciate your insights and sure all of our listeners do as well. So. Well, I'm glad that you would want to ha- share geriatrics with your primary care podcast. Oh yeah, well, um, the primary care podcast today—it's you know we, we <laughs> the family medicine podcast, but uh, uh, I would like to expand it more into internal med, or, you know, talking to inter- internists, pediatricians, uh, and get the full, really the the full spectrum of it all. So. Mm-hmm. Um, and definitely, if people are interested in family medicine, and this is one thing that they can do in family medicine, basically everything you talked about could be internal or a, a family medicine route. 
um, then I think people are going to dig it as much as I do. Oh, good. Cool. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Singh. Yeah, thanks, Russ. back to for me because it's a lot that I miss uh, trying to stay in the moment and uh, be a good interviewer and and trying to be a good listener but um, I like to listen back to uh, the episodes before I put them out there so Dr. Pallet and I know each other through uh, volunteering at Wellspring Church uh, at the well which is a uh, free clinic for homeless people it happens um, the first and third Sundays of the month over at Wellspring Church in, in Englewood, Colorado. So um, we're trying to get more physicians on board to uh, volunteer their time and and thus go to every week or every Sunday. That would be uh, or that's a, a goal we have over there. So um, if you know any physicians or if you are a physician, reach out family medicine podcast at gmail.com. All right. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time. That just add a little pizzazz, you know what I'm saying? Thanks for listening to the Family Medicine Podcast. Remember to subscribe, follow, like, or whatever you do to show you're digging it. Tune in next time. Her uterus was the universe, and it bloomed and birthed the moon and the earth. Nothing ever happened till it was observed by the first animals with optic nerves. It was a fight for survival. Many died, though. Friends were formed to fight mutual rivals. Man and woman appeared, and they realized there was a thing called love, bringing joy into their lives. Boom, they were civilized, went from stones and bones to phones and drones as many kings took the throne. Built empires, and the story's well known. History ticks along like a metronome, and then I came to be to walk, talk, and throw stuff All grown up, I got a job Now it's showing up I'm sleep deprived I'm misaligned My appetite is primed To feed the ego almost all the time And then I met you Lovely and smooth You quickly removed My modern man's blues I wanna celebrate Every breath that I take Cause I'm afraid I'm dreaming And I don't wanna wait So baby, let me grab a hold Of your body, mind, and soul And forever gonna grow Into something we don't know Baby, let me grab a hold Of your body, mind, and soul And forever gonna grow Into something we don't know Grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know. Baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know. The uterus was my universe, but I left to pursue the search of love. But sometimes it hurt along the way. If there's anything I've learned, create a garden, plant flowers in the dirt. I'm gonna be the sunshine and rain, protect you from the pain as I push you toward the flames. Play the game and wonder, am I the hunted or the hunter? was younger I met God and I hugged her she said hey baby instead of getting lost within how about you try to walk a mile in my moccasin stop begin let the thoughts and visions guide you further down the road going inch by inch don't sprint take it slow protect your soul travel long and far but make sure to come home because the love that's here is what keeps you going Gives you the power and the freedom to grow. Let's giggle and laugh and rise up through the stress. This life is crazy, but it's the goddamn best. When life gets complex, don't think, just do it first. It was simpler when the uterus was so big. Let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know. Baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know. Baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know. Baby, let me grab a hold. Body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know. The universe was my universe.
the uterus was my universe. All conversation and information exchanged and contained in the Family Medicine Podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only and should not be confused with medical treatment, advice, or direction. Nothing on the podcast should supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although guests on the show are board certified and licensed physicians, they are not functioning as physicians in this environment, and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. So let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know. Baby, let me grab a hold. Grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul. I'm forever gonna grow into something we don't know.